Hello everyone, this is Christopher Brick and I'm delighted to welcome you back again to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. Today we're joined by Felicitas Hartung, a doctoral candidate at the University of California, San Diego, and a historian of science whose interest in the early Cold War is particularly attuned to the role that a multinational group of U.S.-based scientists played in the peace activism of that time. Einstein was the most famous activist of this set, but there were plenty of others, and Felicitas is here to share a bit more of their story with us today. This talk is entitled Dear Professor Einstein, Early Cold War Nuclear Fears, The Weaponizing of Information Control, and the Vision for a World Government. We really hope you enjoy it. The famous scientist Albert Einstein once said in an interview, I'm enough of an artist to draw freely on my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. In today's podcast, I hope to not only further your knowledge, but most importantly, help you draw on your imagination. I would like to take you to the past. More specifically, I invite you to embark with me on a journey to the time right after World War II. While big stretches of the world laid in shambles, post-war reconstruction offered new opportunities for peace and international cooperation. Albert Einstein and his colleagues were among those who imagined this new world, who dreamt about a world free of nuclear weapons, a world free of war. The work that I am presenting here today is part of my first book. My project relies on the analysis of correspondences between members of the public and nuclear scientists like Albert Einstein, hence the title Dear Professor Einstein. You probably know quite a bit about Einstein. Many of you may picture him as the genius with the white crazy hair sticking out his tongue. But did you also know that Einstein was not only a genius scientist? He was also a passionate political activist who notoriously distrusted the government and advocated for disarmament, international cooperation, and world peace. This idea for international cooperation rose from the ashes of World War II. After the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, many people believed that they could not rely on a reasonable and human attitude when it came to nuclear weapons. Their trust in the ability of national governments to keep the peace in an age of weapons of mass destruction was shattered. This is also true for many nuclear scientists. Some of them had helped to build this evil weapon that they now feared. For example, Albert Einstein, who had co-authored a letter to Roosevelt in 1939, urging him to develop the atomic bomb, now warned of its utilization. He was particularly spooked by the idea that the United States could enter into competition with the Soviet Union, while both sides had nuclear strike capacities. He said, when two sides have the bomb, one or the other will surely use it from nerves of fear, if not from policy. Einstein and some of his colleagues not only distrusted politicians in not using the atomic bomb, they also believed that it was necessary to teach the public about the dangers of the atomic bomb. Only if the public understood this evil weapon would the people start supporting the international control of it. They envisioned the newly found United Nations to take over this control, not only for atomic bombs, but more broadly, of all the technologies associated with the new atomic research. 
In other words, the UN was supposed to overlook the peaceful uses of the atom in the form of energy production and its military applications in nuclear weapons. Einstein and his colleagues grouped both of those applications together under the term atomic energy. While Einstein and his colleagues were brilliant in other areas, linguistics were obviously not quite their strength, since from the standpoint of the energy's utilization, this is incredibly imprecise. The reason why they grouped these together was a scientific one. In defining the term nuclear energy, they cared less about the utilization of this energy. What they described was the energy released by a nuclear chain reaction during which atoms were split. Even more astonishing, however, than this vagueness in terms, is the fact that ideas for international oversight over nuclear weapons were voiced as early as in the immediate post-war period. Yet, we still don't have such an international body in place that would keep the nuclear threat at bay. While I was researching Einstein, his colleagues, and the post-war period, I started to be confronted with three mysteries. First, Einstein once said that intellectuals like him were not good at politics. They lacked the ability to influence the public and sway public opinion. Besides, they also did not make decisions swiftly, which disqualified them from politics. So what changed his mind? Why did scientists like Einstein start to engage in politics? Second, Einstein and his colleagues complained about the ways in which the US government misinformed the public about the dangers of the atomic bomb. They engaged in a battle with the US government over who should enlighten the public about the new nuclear technology. In other words, how do governments and scientists decide who controls the release of scientific information to the public? Third, but not least important, since 1945, there are nuclear weapons in our world. Basically, since then, we have been living at the brink of humanity's destruction. What ideas did Einstein and his colleagues propose to avoid nuclear annihilation? Or, in broader terms, is international cooperation the right path to world peace? Can international organizations like the UN keep the nuclear threat at bay and make the world a safer place? Why do I want to talk to you about these mysteries today? Surely I'm writing a whole book on it. But why should you or anyone whatsoever care? Although nearly eight decades have passed since the beginning of the Cold War, we are still facing very similar challenges. Both the war in Ukraine and the constant nuclear threats voiced in North Korea demonstrate that fears of nuclear annihilation are still prevalent in our world. While some experts deem it unlikely that we will soon face nuclear war, others say that there is still a considerable nuclear risk. Take Putin's invasion in Ukraine, for example. Since March, Putin has threatened with the use of nuclear bombs. Jeffrey Lewis, a senior scholar at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, asked on NPR, what would happen if the Russian warning system had a false alarm in the middle of a crisis like this? Would Putin know it was a false alarm? Or would he jump to the wrong conclusion? A nuclear war in the near or distant future would not be limited to one or two nations. Even if the nuclear attacks were limited to a smaller region, today's nuclear weapons have such a yield and cause such devastating nuclear fallout that it would affect all life on Earth. Aside from the nuclear threat, we are also in the middle of a climate crisis. In 2019 and then again last year in 2021, William Ripple, professor of ecology at Oregon State University, together with his colleagues, 
warned of a climate emergency. They described how the climate change produced worldwide disasters, including devastating flooding in South America and Southeast Asia, record-shattering heat waves and wildfires in Australia and the Western United States, an extraordinary Atlantic hurricane season, and devastating cyclones in Africa, South Asia, and the West Pacific. Since this is a global problem, no single nation can resolve it on its own. In other words, we are in great need for information and an even greater need for international cooperation in many areas. The COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated this quite forcefully. Not only did politicians and experts from the medical field engage in heated arguments about who had the correct information, they also formed collaborations to provide the governments with the necessary information to formulate their policies. And COVAX, the initiative to distribute vaccines quickly throughout the world, is a great example for recent global cooperation. Einstein and his colleagues sought to demonstrate that science and scientists can provide this information and promote international cooperation. Walter Isaacson, who wrote a biography on Albert Einstein, by the way, a very nicely written New York Times bestseller, Isaacson helps to draw a connection between Einstein's life and the relevance of science for today. He said, an appreciation for the methods of science is a useful asset for a responsible citizenry. What science teaches us, very significantly, is the correlation between factual evidence and general theories, something well illustrated in Einstein's life. Particularly in our post-structuralist world in which the very existence of facts is being questioned, it can be helpful for historians to glimpse over to our colleagues in the STEM fields. Let's turn to our first mystery. Why did scientists like Einstein start to engage in politics in the post-war period? During the Cold War, politics and nuclear science were inextricably linked and mutually determinative. The relationship between scientists and the public not only influenced scientific knowledge production and the communication of scientific findings to the public, it also made the scientific inquiry in areas such as atomic sciences political. Although a military and thus political interest in technological advancement is as old as warfare, nuclear science changed the relationship between the sciences and politics during the Cold War. Scientists expressed increased concerns about public safety and the impact of nuclear fallout on the environment. They sought to sway public emotions about the dangers the newly developed atomic bomb posed, and they suggested the formation of a world-governing institution to keep the atomic threat at bay. In short, they increasingly assumed a role as political leaders through their advocacy for peace. This is what I would like to show today by introducing you to the peace actions of a group of nuclear scientists around Albert Einstein, the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists. Einstein's personality informed many of the actions of the ECAS, the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists. His reaction of authority informed his understanding of knowledge production and inspired the ECAS's education campaign. In a letter to a friend in 1901, Einstein remarked, a foolish faith in authority is the worst enemy of truth. Einstein's interesting relationship to religion is probably the reason why he distrusted any kind of authority in his life. Although his parents had been of Jewish descent, Einstein's parents Hermann and Pauline did not practice religion. Therefore, they did not mind sending him to a Catholic school. 
Einstein himself, however, developed a passion for practicing Judaism in his preteen years. He adhered to the kosher dietary laws, honored the restrictions of the Sabbath, and even composed hymns for the glorification of God, which he sang on his way home from school. At the age of 12, his faith got disrupted, seemingly at a similar speed at which it had appeared. After having been exposed to mathematics, philosophy, and various forms of the sciences, he began to question the scripture and came to the conclusion that the stories told in the Bible could not be true. While Einstein maintained his amazement of God's creation, which he explored through science, he rejected religious rituals for the rest of his life. In fact, as his biographer Walter Isaacson describes it, he developed an allergic reaction against all forms of dogma and authority, which was to affect both his politics and his science. Einstein's anti-authoritarianism also inspired a rejection of any type of militancy. He later explained, when a person can take pleasure in marching in step to a piece of music, it is enough to make me despise him. He has been given his big brain only by mistake. Thus, Einstein was not only appalled by the militaristic drills at his school, but also by Prussian-style marching soldiers, whom his classmates cheered on when they passed by on the streets. These experiences inspired his peace activism, which he acted out by chairing the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists. In addition to Einstein's biographical background, which inspired his rejection of authority and militancy, he also saw an urgent need to speak up. He, like many scientists, believed that the US government underestimated the destructive potential of the atomic bomb. As historian Lawrence Wittner remarked, after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, scientists and national leaders had developed opposing ideas about the use of atomic bombs. A growing number of nuclear scientists viewed the bomb as no more than a wartime deterrent. They believed the atomic bomb should never be detonated, just shown off as a threat. In contrast, national leaders perceived the atomic bomb as a legitimate weapon of war and a valuable instrument of post-war diplomacy. They found it legitimate to use it in wartime. Stuck in a traditional view on weapons, political leaders did not consider the nuclear bomb special. Despite the devastating effects it had caused in Japan, they grouped it together with conventional weaponry. The growing opposition of nuclear scientists against a grouping of atomic weapons under traditional weapons of war marks the beginning of the scientific peace movement in the post-World War II era. In a 1946 article, Albert Einstein is being quoted with some alarming words. We scientists who release this immense power have an overwhelming responsibility in this world, life and death struggle, to harness the atom for the benefit of mankind and not for humanity's destruction. After World War II and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, atomic scientists came together to prevent a future atomic war and an arms race. These efforts resulted in the formation of numerous organizations and mobilized thousands of individuals. The combined effort came to be known as the Atomic Scientists Movement. Among these groups was the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists, the ECAS, which commenced its work in 1946. While Albert Einstein shared their group, other famous names appear on the members list, such as Linus Pauling, who up until this date is the only person who ever received two undivided Nobel Prizes, 
Leo Szilard, who had developed the method to produce a nuclear chain reaction in 1933, a discovery which was essential for the building of the atomic bomb. They saw scientists particularly responsible for the atomic bombings. As physical chemist Harold Urey asserted, there is no doubt that the vast majority of atomic scientists feel a definite responsibility to the future of the discovery of the atomic bomb and the development of theirs. So why did scientists like Einstein start to engage in politics? Some like Einstein had personal reasons, like his anti-authoritarianism, but all scientists who engaged in post-war political activism believed the US government dealt irresponsibly with this new weapon of mass destruction. They, as scientists, saw it as their responsibility to speak up since they had helped develop the atomic bomb in the first place. This brings us to our second mystery. The scientists disagreed with the ways in which the US government dealt with the newly developed atomic bomb. But what did they do about it? Specifically, how did they challenge the US government in controlling the information about the new technology that was being released to the public? Simply put, they released information themselves. Between 1946 and 1951, the ECAS launched a campaign to educate the public about the dangers of the new atomic technology and provided a platform to air fears of nuclear power. During this campaign, they exchanged numerous letters with the people in the United States, and by numerous, I mean thousands. I've already read over 500 of them and I barely scratched the surface. What an operation. The Postal Service must have made a fortune during that time. The ECAS scientists were convinced that politicians were not relaying vital information to the public. This conviction stems from the Truman administration's perception of the Cold War threat. Key advisors within the Truman administration envisioned Soviet ideology as the main threat to post-war United States. They held that the containment of ideas was harder than the containment of military threats, which led them to understand ideas as pathogens that use vectors to infect their hosts. Hence, early Cold War policymakers saw Soviet communism as a contagion that needed to be contained. This pathogenic theory was expressed in a 1943 memo to President Roosevelt. Due to this perception of ideas, policymakers understood that information that was supposed to be relayed to the public could and had to be manipulated. The ECAS's information campaign stands in outright opposition to this governmental tactic. Like the ECAS, many scientists shared the belief that an end to secrecy and the wide distribution of information about atomic energy would be key to establishing peace. During the first radio broadcast of the Federation of Atomic Scientists, their chairman and physicist William Higginbotham held, America is now pledged to make available the information necessary for an understanding of the problem. This step is not in any sense a gamble. It is the only hope of humanity. Otherwise, we should be making a very empty gesture. We found that scientists played a very important role in this undertaking. They were, more than any other citizen, qualified to evaluate technical proposals and determine whether they were based on sound scientific studies and conclusions. Moreover, scientists were familiar with cooperation on a world scale, which was the lifeblood of science. In other words, Higginbotham considered it the scientist's responsibility to fact-check political proposals and thereby interfere in the regulation of atomic energy that took place on the political stage. 
Thus, nuclear energy made science political. And no scientist could deny the responsibility of science to engage in the political discourse if they did not want to risk nuclear annihilation. Through the ECAS, the scientists sought to create a public understanding of the atomic era. During a conference at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton in 1946, the members of the ECAS outlined a wide program of general education, thereby considering education as the only hope. While seeking to educate the public, they distributed pamphlets, published in various magazines and journals, and produced films like Atomic Power or One World or None, which were screened in theaters around the nation. Let's hear a short excerpt from One World or None, and I think it does a really good job in demonstrating the urgency uh, with which the nuclear scientists uh, thought that it would be necessary to address the nuclear threat. It is therefore an imperative necessity that all the nations of the world unite to avert catastrophe. The United Nations must establish a worldwide control of atomic energy and of other weapons of mass destruction. of the world must together make laws which will abolish war, laws which will hold the individual in all lands responsible for crime against world peace. Only through proper control of atomic energy can we answer the question how this great force may be used for the benefit of mankind. Atomic energy freed from the menace of war, can be for all people, in all nations, the great fusing force of one world. The choice is clear. It is life or death. including the production of those films like One World or None, the ECAS demanded to bring the secret atomic science from the backstage of governmental agencies and secret labs to the front stage and make it public. They understood that public fears of the atomic threat were dependent upon the public's understanding of atomic energy. In an open letter to the American people, scientist Harold Urey held that our civilization is the race between education and catastrophe which demonstrates the urgency that the ECAS members saw in educating the public. Public reactions to the efforts of the ECAS were split. Many response letters asked to check the sponsorship of the committee, obviously distrusting their impartiality. Others offered words of support. For instance, the director of the Department of Social Welfare in Rhode Island, Clemens Franz, wrote, I think that nationwide information and education on the implications of both the destructive and constructive features of atomic energy is the number one subject of importance in what Leland Stove rightly called year one of the atomic age. 
Others, however, criticized the committee. For instance, Jane Fry expressed her concern that the education campaign will accomplish exactly nothing if it does not have as its foundation a spiritual understanding. Thus, the public reactions to the ECAS show that public trust in atomic science was fragile in the early Cold War period. Moreover, most of the US public trusted in the peace-stabilizing effects of the atomic bomb. In a 1949 Gallup poll, 59% of the interviewees answered that they thought the invention of the atomic bomb was a good thing. And even 48% said that the atomic bomb would make another war less likely. Among people with a college education, 56% were of this opinion. Thus, the atomic scientists had every reason to believe that the public was not sufficiently educated in the dangers that the atomic bomb poses. Their suspicion that the US government intentionally withheld information and did not sufficiently inform the public about the dangers of the atomic bomb seems to be true, considering that so many people underestimated its destructive potential. At the heart of ICAS's education campaign stood the promotion of an idea for a world government. They held that a worldwide government should be formed under which all atomic technologies and the political power to control them should be placed. And this leads us to our third mystery. Is international cooperation the right path to world peace? Can international organizations like the UN keep the nuclear threat at bay and make the world a safer place? Let me complicate this mystery just a bit more. How can an international organization promote nuclear non-proliferation without the risk of creating a potentially authoritarian supranational regime? In other words, if we build an international organization, who can say for certain that not another Hitler regime will come out of it? A regime that strives for world domination and remains unchecked because it is the highest and most powerful of all organizations in the world. Let me back up here for a second. We heard that the ECAS suggested the formation of a world government. Visions for a world governing organization always come with an inherent dilemma. In order to build a supranational organization, it is necessary for the member states to sacrifice part of the national sovereignty to form such an international organization. The ECAS's activism demonstrates that early Cold War nuclear fears not only motivated international cooperation, but also trumped concerns about authoritarianism. However, the tension between national power and the necessity of sacrificing part of the national sovereignty to build a peacekeeping supranational government eventually resulted in the demise of this utopian vision. In fact, the visions for a world government took place in a unique time when Soviets and Americans were interested in international cooperation. By 1949, however, a perceived bipolar world let them favor world domination over peace. Let's get back into our narrative and explore two proposals for the formation of a world government. The one that was proposed by the ECAS and another one that the Truman administration suggested. I will first provide a brief introduction of the state of the newly formed United Nations before I explain the Truman administrations and then the ECAS's vision for world government. We will see that neither of those proposals were uncontested, but both received widespread support. 
Both proposals for a world government suggested turning the United Nations organization into such a supranational government. At that time, right after World War II, the UN was still in her baby shoes. It came into existence in 1945 after the Charter had been ratified by the Big Five, which were the United States, the Soviet Union, China, the United Kingdom, and France. On January 24, 1946, the United Nations General Assembly came together. Their first resolution focused on the peaceful uses of atomic energy and the elimination of weapons of mass destruction. In short, even before the ECAS's proposal, the UN had engaged in efforts for global nuclear disarmament and the peaceful utilization of atomic energy. Aside from the UN's engagement for nuclear non-proliferation, it was not at all clear if the United Nations would be able to maintain world peace. The ECAS scrutinized the effectiveness of the United Nations as an institution that could prevent nuclear war. They argued that both the United States and Russia had demonstrated their lack of confidence in the organization and claimed that there is a growing danger that faith will be lost not only in the UN as it now stands, but also in the possibility of any successful international order. They thus observed a lack of trust in the UN, which posed a serious danger to world peace. Specifically, the ECAS identified that the UN's weakness lay in the Big Five's right to veto. Due to this right, it was up to the Big Five to determine whether an act of aggression had occurred and if sanctions should be employed. This right bore a risk. If one of the Big Five attacked another UN member state, the attacking Big Five member could veto the sanctions that the Security Council implemented against them. Hence, their aggression would remain unpunished. Potentially, this could result in the discrimination of smaller member states, which the Big Five could attack without having to fear consequences. In any case, the UN could only implement sanctions after an aggression had occurred. Hence, the UN could not prevent war. Consequently, the UN members still strove for military supremacy to assure their own safety. To prevent this, the Truman administration suggested the creation of an International Atomic Development Authority, an idea that the ECAS supported. This proposal is known as the Baruch Plan, named after the presidential advisor Bernard M. Baruch, who presented the plan to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission or UNEC. UNEC had been formed in 1945 with the purpose to abolish all atomic weapons and to encourage the use of atomic energy for solely peaceful purposes. In his speech to UNEC, Baruch described the urgency with which this plan should be implemented to avoid nuclear war. Let's hear Bernard and Baruch speak before UNEC. We are here to make a choice between the quick and the dead. That is our business. Behind the black portent of the new atomic age lies a hope which, seized upon with faith, can work our salvation. If we fail, then we have damned every man to be the slave of fear. Let us not deceive ourselves. We must elect world peace a world destruction. 
passed by the UN Council, the Baruch Plan would have created the aforementioned International Atomic Development Authority under the auspices of the United Nations. The United States pledged that they would destroy their nuclear arsenal if the Baruch Plan was put into action. The authority was supposed to control all phases of the development and use of nuclear technologies, including research and energy production. It would further control any nuclear installation with the ability to produce nuclear weapons, which effectively meant that the authority, and thereby the UN, would hold the nuclear monopoly. In order to enforce this plan, the authority would advise and oversee the inspection of any nuclear facilities that conducted atomic research to ensure that these research facilities would not secretly be converted into nuclear weapons production sites. Baruch urged the UNEC nations to make provisions for sanctions if a nation strayed from the terms of the Atomic Energy Treaty. Most importantly, these sanctions should not be subject to the veto power of the permanent members of the UN Security Council. By suggesting the sacrifice of the veto power, the Baruch plan alienated the Soviet Union. Another point of contestation were the inspections. The Soviets argued that allowing foreigners to inspect their facilities would violate their national sovereignty. After three years of negotiation, the Soviet Union detonated the first atomic bomb and discussions about the Baruch plan came to a halt. The newly perceived bipolar world had terminated the chance for international cooperation. For the ICAS and many of their supporters, the Baruch plan was not far-reaching enough. The reason why Einstein and his colleagues started to propose a plan that would go even beyond the Baruch plan and would uh, sacrifice parts of the national sovereignty of the member states was because the ICAS and many of their supporters thought that the Baruch plan would actually bear a couple of risks. And one of those was in allowing UN members to maintain nuclear power plants, which could potentially be converted into nuclear weapons production sites. Thus, the nations with the largest production capability and the fastest speed of converting those production sites into weapons production sites would gain nuclear supremacy. Additionally, the UN member states would still be able to engage in military training, as well as deploy and stockpile nuclear material. Preventing this, however, would have required a departure from the traditional concept of national sovereignty, a change that ICAS member Albert Einstein encouraged. He urged the people of the world to choose between this traditional concept of national sovereignty and a transfer of national sovereignty to a supranational entity like the United Nations. The UN would thereby become the only government on Earth, a so-called one world government. Think about this for a moment. We would have no individual nations anymore. No United States, no Great Britain, no France, no China, no Congo or South Africa, no Russia, no Luxembourg or Andorra. Hmm. Okay, maybe we could get rid of some of them. But getting rid of all nations of the world, that would be a big change. No US president, only a world leadership. Quite a utopia that the scientists were suggesting. Naturally, Einstein's suggestion of surrendering national sovereignty was very controversial. For instance, H.A. Jackson of Los Angeles found quite radical words of disagreement in his article Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, Baruch's Atomic Proposal. He commenced his paper by comparing Baruch's plan to Hitler's quest for world domination. Compared to Baruch's atomic control proposal, Hitler's bid for worldwide domination shows up at strict amateur stuff. 
surrendering national sovereignty, in Jackson's opinion, posed a greater danger than even the menace of the bomb itself. In other words, going beyond the Maruk plan opened up a conundrum. If the nations of the world transferred parts of the national sovereignty to the United Nations, would that make a stable world peace more likely? Or would that turn the UN into another Hitler regime? The ICAS's demand for the formation of a world government was part of a larger grassroots movement, which involved not only other peace groups, but also local governmental organizations. First of all, the ICAS received many letters of support. Second, like the ICAS, another group of scientists, the Federation of Atomic Scientists, supported the Baruch Plan as well. Third, the idea of a world government was also supported by several mayors, such as Eugene van Antwerp, the mayor of Detroit. He called for a World Government Week. He thereby joined other cities such as Cleveland, Chicago, Minneapolis and Toronto. While the demands for a world government were strong at the grassroots level, the federal government supported the idea to a certain extent as we have seen in the Baruch Plan. Truman, however, never went so far as to give out a substantial part of American sovereignty. In fact, when the ECAS sent a request for support to the White House, Truman wrote, Bunko, nothing else on it. Although the ECAS successfully collected about half a million dollars for the education campaign and widely promoted their ideas for a world government, this idea was not being put into action. The Cold War commenced and the nuclear threat was launched into full swing. So is the history of the ECAS then a story of failures? I don't think so. I think it taught us two things. First, since the nuclear age, science and politics are inextricably intertwined. Scientists more and more assume roles as political leaders, and politicians claim they understand the scientific basis for their policy decisions. Is this a dangerous path? Maybe, at least if either of these groups leaves the realm of scientific facts and base their actions purely on belief. Second, there is one more lesson that we can learn from the ECAS, and that pertains to international relations. Analyzing the ECAS's vision for a world government and the Baruch Plan can help us learn about non-aggressive ways of conflict resolutions and allows us to learn about the conditions under which international cooperation is prone to fail. Historians call such an approach contrafactual. Contrafactual histories ask what-if questions, or as British historian Richard Evans defines it, by contrafactuals, I mean alternative versions of the past in which one alteration in the timeline leads to a different outcome from the one we know actually occurred. The term contrafactual, however, is misleading. It assumes that the outcome of such histories is not based on facts. Of course, we don't have evidence from an alternative past, but we can ground contrafactual observations on evidence, which makes the difference between good and bad varieties of contrafactual narratives, as philosopher Martin Bunzel remarked. The history that I presented here today is not a contrafactual history in a strict sense. After all, as Big Bang Theory character Sheldon Cooper noted, Albert Einstein's love life distracted him so much from his work that he didn't get to invent the time machine. What a bummer. Since we can't get back in time, I won't even attempt to map out an alternative version of the past, explaining how exactly international relations would have looked like if a world government had been formed after World War II. But what I will do is debate the benefits and risks of this alternative solution to the increasing Cold War conflict. If atomic energy had come under international control in the early Cold War period, 
maybe other countries would not have developed the atomic bomb, like the Soviet Union did in 1949, and maybe it would not have come to such a dangerous arms race. These are a lot of ifs. What we can say for sure, though, is that international cooperation is a promising path to keeping the nuclear danger under check. We today still face the nuclear threat, as the world did in the early Cold War period. What is different now, however, is that we have established international safeguards in the area of atomic energy. What started with the 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty was developed into a complex net of different international agreements on nuclear energy. So maybe Einstein was right in the end, and only international cooperation can alleviate the threat of nuclear annihilation. The Ikasa story definitely shows that we should think more of our fellow nations as partners than as rivals and enemies to make the world a safer place. Last but not least, I would like to thank all of those who made my participation in this podcast possible. Of course, there's a great team here at the OAH podcast production with whom it was a pleasure to work. And a big thanks goes to the Critical Past and the Federation of Atomic Scientists who allowed me to use parts of the recorded material to integrate into this podcast. And then our UCSD librarian Harold Colson, as well as my two advisors, Dr. Rebecca Plant and Dr. Nancy Kwok, were there for me to answer questions and provide feedback. Thanks to all of you, and thank you, listener, for making it all the way to the end of my lecture. And that's a wrap. Thank you once more to our guests for another brilliant presentation and for sharing some of their work with us. Thanks to you for listening. Come again next time, and we will catch you then. <laughs>